beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our government takes a census every five years. It's used for a variety of purposes. It gives a snapshot of our population at a set point in time. How many people live in different regions, their ages and their economic circumstances. This information is used to set electoral districts, to determine uh, federal transfer payments, to plan for public services like health care, education, and transportation. Data from the census is also used to assess the economic state of our country, as well as economic conditions of special groups like immigrants, seniors, and our indigenous people. The Book of Numbers began with a census. Israel's census numbered all the men from 20 years old and upward. At the beginning of their wilderness sojourn, this totaled 603,550 men, not including those from the tribe of Levi, for they'd been set apart for service at the tabernacle. The purpose of the census was to number those able to go to war in Israel. We know what happened to that first generation that came out of Egypt. They were afraid of the Canaanite nations living in the promised land. They did not trust that the Lord would give them the land. Because of their rebellion against the Lord, he decreed that none of that generation would inherit the promised land. Forty years have passed. Israel is once more at the borders of the promised land. They're camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan across from Jericho. The time has nearly come for them to take possession of the land that God had sworn to them on oath from the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Before they enter the land, the Lord once more commands Moses to take a census of the people. Once again, it's a census of the men aged 20 years old and up, of those able to go to war. Most of our text is devoted to the results of this census. When reading through our text, it may seem to be a dry and rather boring record of the various sizes of the different tribes. Yet, beloved, it's more than this. Our text includes various editorial observations which shed light on the census itself. When comparing this census to the previous one, certain things stand out. Above all else, there is one thing that this census makes clear. It highlights the steadfast love and the faithfulness of the Lord to his covenant people. We're going to focus on that this morning. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. The second census in Numbers is a testament to God's faithfulness. We'll see that God is faithful in spite of Israel's sins, in leading them forward in faith, and in preparing them for the conquest of Canaan. Taking a census shows how things change over the years. Perhaps I can demonstrate that by using the Redeemer Church, including Ambassador, as an example. 
my statistics may not be totally perfect, but as far as I could figure out, in the past 10 years, we've had 86 children born and 12 members die. It's reflective of our demographics, considering we began as an immigrant church. We've had 77 members move out and 83 members join, whether from elsewhere or through public profession of faith. That means that although we have a stable membership at our church, we've had a turnover of 20% of our membership. 27 of our members have gotten married. That doesn't include people who were members but moved out prior to getting married. We've also seen 25 members withdraw or be excommunicated. I was shocked to see so many turn away from the service of God. It's not just membership of the church that changes over time. In 2012, Redeemer was served by one pastor, eight elders, and four deacons. And today, we have two pastors, nine elders, and four deacons. What's really striking is to see the changeover in leadership. Only four of the 13 men who served in office in 2012 are serving today. Part of that is due to the fact that our elders and deacons serve a three-year term of office. But former office bearers have also moved away, retired, and died. Others have had to step up and take their place. Because change often happens slowly, we're often oblivious to it. But a census helps to show how much things have really changed. I gave you a sample of the change that happened at Redeemer over a 10-year period. Yet our text records the second census taken in numbers, which is almost 40 years after the previous one. Who of you here are under 40 years of age? If you are, you would not have been counted in a census taken 40 years ago. How many of you are over 60 years of age? If you are numbered among those 20 years or more in the first census coming out of Egypt, you wouldn't be alive anymore today. In verses 64 and 65 of our text, stresses that not one of those listed in the first census had survived, except for Caleb and Joshua. The rest of that generation died in the wilderness. It's a reality check for each one of us, beloved. It reminds us that we're not going to be here forever. God has ordained for most of us to live 70 or 80 or perhaps even 90 years. When you're 7 or 15 or perhaps 25, it seems like your whole life is stretched out in front of you. And by the time you turn 40 or 50 or 60, you realize that the better part of your life has passed you by. We ourselves are part of the process of time moving on. We don't sit as spectators watching the passing of time like a procession. No, we're part of the process. 
were in the procession. The second census in Numbers marks the passing of one generation and the establishment of the next. The generation of Israelites that came out of Egypt were not a generation of faith. A key theme of the book of Numbers is that this whole generation died because of their unbelief. They grumbled at their lot in life. They murmured against the leadership of Moses and Aaron. They repeatedly rebelled against the Lord. They were unwilling to trust that he could give them possession of the land of Canaan. This final rebellion led to his judgment that their bodies would be scattered in the wilderness. We cannot make any excuses for the unbelief and the rebellion of the first generation that came out of Egypt. But we can understand that their circumstances inclined them towards grumbling. They had been enslaved in Egypt. They had spent their lives making mud bricks and doing building projects for Pharaoh. They had felt the whip lash of their taskmasters. They had seen their children thrown into the Nile as they were born. This was a generation made bitter by their experiences in slavery in Egypt. God's mighty works of bringing the ten plagues on Egypt and of delivering them through the midst of the Red Sea should have been enough for them to put their trust in the Lord. But at key moments, they doubted God, not trusting His faithfulness. The census at the fords of the Jordan shows us that a new generation has arisen. This new generation is a generation of faith. Know also they are not without sin. We saw that in Numbers 25, where the Israelites were seduced by Baal of Peor. The Moabites had invited them to their parties, and some of the Israelites were guilty of idolatry and of sexual immorality. God punished them by bringing a plague upon them that killed 24,000 people. Yet this generation had learned much from the sins of their fathers. The Lord's discipline had trained them to walk in His ways. This was a generation of faith, ready to fight for and to conquer their enemies in the promised land. Numbers 26 is written in a way to encourage this generation to learn from the past and encourage them to see God's faithfulness despite their sinful ways. It's seen especially in some of the details included in this account of the census. The first thing to notice is that our text begins with the Lord speaking to Moses and to Eliezer, the priest. It's the first time in Numbers that Aaron is not mentioned. Aaron has died because of Moses and Aaron's sin in not honoring God when providing the Israelites with water from the rock at Meribah. Because of their sin, neither Aaron nor Moses was allowed to enter the land of promise. Next, we come to the mention of Dathan and Abiram. Together with Korah, they led a rebellion of 250 men who challenged Moses and Aaron's leadership. 
Dathan and Abiram's complaint centered on what they saw as Moses' deficient leadership. They accused Moses of taking them out of a land flowing with milk and honey, Egypt, and of bringing them into the desert. They charged him with breaking his promise to bring them into the land of Canaan. At the heart of their accusations is a charge that Moses had made himself prince over them. Our text mentions Dathan and Abiram as part of the genealogy of Reuben. It explains that in contending against Moses and Aaron, they contended against the Lord. Reminds this new generation of the punishment that had come upon this group of rebels. It says, And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, together with Korah, when that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men, and they became a warning. They became a warning. A warning against rebelling against the leaders God appointed over his people. Next, we come to the tribe of Simeon. When we compare the census numbers from Numbers 1 with our text, some of the tribes slightly increased in number and some slightly decreased in number. The main exception to this is the tribe of Simeon. In the first census, the tribe of Simeon numbered 59,300. And now they numbered only 22,200. That's a massive decrease. Only slightly more than a third of this tribe remains. It makes you ask, why? When Jacob blessed his sons, he cursed Simeon and Levi for their violence, their anger and wrath in seeking revenge against the men of Shechem for deviling their sister Dinah. Part of the curse was that they would be divided in Jacob and scattered in Israel. In Numbers 25, it was one of the leaders of the tribe of Simeon that had blatantly brought home a Midianite woman in the sight of all Israel while the people were weeping at the tent of meeting. He took her into his tent to have sex with her. It may very well be that many more of the Simeonites had participated in the sin of worshipping Baal of Peor, and that many of them had died in the plague that killed 24,000 Israelites on that day. Our text gives one more example of sinfulness that the Israelites could learn from. When the family of the Levites are listed, there is special mention of Nadab, and Abihu. They were sons of Aaron who, authorized, who offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. They were members of the priestly family in charge of mediating between the Lord and his people. Because of their sin, the Lord struck them down with fire from heaven. God doesn't discriminate between people on the basis of their social standing. These leaders came under the judgment of God. The second census of the Israelites makes clear that they died childless, with no one to carry on their name or family line in Israel. We've noticed some examples of the sins of the previous generation. And yet, beloved, in spite of the sinfulness of the first generation coming out of Egypt, the Lord remained faithful 
What we have in Numbers 26 is not a totally new or different nation. Because of Israel's idolatry and because of a rebellion against the Lord, the Lord had threatened on more than one occasion to wipe them all out and to start afresh. But God remembered the promises he made to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of how their descendants would inherit the promised land. In our text, this new generation is identified as the congregation of the people of Israel. It identifies them as the people who came out of the land of Egypt. The Lord is faithful to his promises. Despite our sins, he keeps his promises forever. It's true that a new generation has risen up and that the old one has mostly died out. And yet there is continuity with the past. This is still the nation that God rescued out of Egypt. The Israel that Pharaoh oppressed is the same one that Balak wanted to curse. These are the people of God. And despite the passage of time, God remains faithful to them. He will lead them onward into Canaan, for he has plans for his people. Plans that include the coming of the Messiah to redeem them from their sins. There's something that we can learn from this as well, brothers and sisters. We today, as Christian church, are God's people. The Redeemer Church is made up of sheep belonging to the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. Over time, much can happen in a local church. Members come and go. Some die while others are born. We rejoice when people from outside join through a public profession of their faith. We mourn when members withdraw or when they're excommunicated due to a persistence in following a sinful way of life. But Christ continues his work of gathering, defending, and preserving a people for himself. The church continues. It endures because of Christ's grace and faithfulness. Brings us to our second point. The second census in Numbers is a testament of God's faithfulness. We see that God is faithful in leading them forward in faith. In our first point, we noted some details mentioned in the census that served as warnings for God's people Israel. And there are also a few details that are listed to give particular encouragement to God's people Israel. The first is the mention of the sons of Korah, verse 11. We noted earlier that together with Dathan and Abiram, Korah led a rebellion of 250 men who challenged the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Korah was one of the Levites. He challenged the fact that Moses was the designated high priest and that his family were the ones who presented offerings to the Lord on behalf of all Israel. He thought that all the, that all the Levites should be able to offer to be involved in offering sacrifices before God at the tabernacle. 
The Lord's response to this rebellion was to have the ground open up and swallow Dathan and Abiram and their families and to send fire from heaven to consume Korah and the 250 men offering incense. When you read the original account of what happened in Numbers 16, it appears as if Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and all of their families were put to death by the Lord. Yet what's striking about the second census is that it particularly mentions that the sons of Korah did not die. In Numbers 16, Moses called on those wanting to be saved to step away from the tents of the leaders of their rebellion. Apparently, some of the sons of Korah stepped away from their father's rebellion. Here we see the mercy and grace of the Lord. Yes, God does punish rebellion and sin. Korah was consumed with fire from heaven because of his rebellion. Yet in grace, God took a family that was under a, set, a deserved sentence of death, and he redeemed them. God loves to forgive those who repent and who turn to him. That's clearly what he did with the sons of Korah. What a lesson this was for the new generation that was being numbered. They were the children of a generation that put the Lord to the test ten times, who provoked him to anger again and again. Yet God did not hold that against them. In the case of the sons of Korah, we see that being spared a sentence of death inspired this family to praise God in special ways. Psalms 42 to 49 and Psalms 84, 85, 87, and 88 were written by the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah became temple singers. They loved to sing of thirsting for God and about appearing before him in his house. The sons of Korah are a testament of God's faithfulness and love through the generations of those who love and fear him. The second census also mentions Ur and Onan, sons of Judah. Genesis 38 tells their story in more detail. Judah had three sons born to him through the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. Ur was the oldest. Judah found a wife for him named Tamar. Because Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord, the Lord put him to death. And Judah commanded his next son, Onan, to take Tamar as his wife, to raise up offspring for his brother. Since he knew that the offspring would not be his, whenever he went to his brother's wife, he would waste his semen on the ground so as not to raise up children for his brother. What he did was also wicked in God's eyes, so he also put Onan to death. When Judah refused to give his son Shelah to Tamar to raise up for a family for his brother, Tamar pretended to be a prostitute and enticed Judah to sleep with her. The result was that she bore twins, Perez and Zerah. In our text, after mentioning how Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan, the sons of Judah are mentioned as Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. What is remarkable about this account is how the Lord turned a sad story 
of wickedness and sin, even incest, to the good. In Genesis 38, Judah commended Tamar for her righteousness. And God blessed that righteousness. The tribe of Judah numbered 76,500 people. Judah became the largest of all the tribes of Israel. Brings us to our final point. And we'll see that God is faithful in preparing them for the conquest of Canaan. What is most striking about the second census is the total numbering of the Israelites. While in Egypt, the Israelites had multiplied greatly, causing the Egyptians to become afraid of them. The first census taken at Mount Sinai numbered a total of 603, 550 men. Since that time, Israel had wandered in the desert for almost 40 years. They lived in a dry and desolate place, a place that was inhospitable to human life. Yet in the second census, we see that the total number of the people has hardly declined. The number of the men from 20 years old and upward now numbers 601, 730 people. Israel was almost the same size, despite the fact that some 24,000 people had just perished because of their sin at Baal Peor, and some 15,000 people died at the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and thousands more had died when God sent fiery snakes to consume them. In many ways, it's a miracle that there were not far less people in the second census. Yet despite their sin and rebellion, God had kept the numbers of the nation intact. He gave Israel many capable men to go and fight and take possession of the land he had promised them. There's also a second purpose in numbering the tribes of Israel. The end of Numbers 26 makes that clear. There the Lord spells out how the land of Canaan was to be divided among the tribes according to their size. Larger tribes would be given a larger inheritance, and smaller tribes a smaller inheritance. The Lord would supply the needs of his people. He would grant every family their own parcel of land. In the land he had sworn to give them hundreds of years earlier. He would provide each man with his own vine and fig tree to enjoy. He would give them rest after suffering slavery in Egypt and after their wilderness wanderings. There's a final lesson that we can draw from the second census of the Israelites in Numbers. The census is not just about the total numbers of each tribe. In a census, every name is listed. God's people are not just a faceless mob. Every man in Israel, every family is listed by name. The Lord knew all his people by name. We only get a summary in Numbers 26. 
But a census is a listing of all the people living in a particular place at a moment in time. It's really profound, beloved. Ponder on the fact that the God of this universe, in charge of this world and all that's in it, knows you by name. Today, there are more than 8 billion people living on this earth. In the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, the Lord Jesus made promises to those who conquer, who persevere in their fight against sin and the devil. Jesus promised to give each one of us a new name. Jesus says that he who conquers will be clothed in white garments and promises I will never blot his name out of the book of life. When you look at the sin and rebellion of the Israelites, you understand that at times the Lord was sorely tempted to wipe them out. It's certainly what they deserved. When we consider our own lives and how often we grieve and anger God with our sins, we recognize we don't deserve God's mercy or grace. And yet the second census in Numbers 26 is a testament of God's love and faithfulness. Psalm 138 verse 8 expresses it well. David confesses, The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Paul encouraged the Philippian church with these words. He wrote that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's why we also read together from Revelation 7 this morning. There we see the Lord counting his people who will share in his blessings on the final day. The 12 tribes of Israel are mentioned. And each tribe has a full number gathered in who will come with Jesus on the clouds of heaven. And in addition to that, John mentions a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. It's an accounting of the full number of the elect of all those who will share in the blessings of God eternally. And so, beloved, we end this sermon with a question. Our text contains strong warnings about those who rebelled against God and who suffered under His wrath. Our text contained glorious examples of God's grace and love to those who repented of their sins and sought their life with God and His people. Where does all this leave you? Are you among the unbelieving rebels who will die in the wilderness? Or are you among those who believe in the Lord and who will inherit the promised land? Just like the Israelites, we are traveling on the way to the promised land. Canaan was but a symbol of the glorious homeland God has in store for all those who love Him. 
In Christ, God has promised us life with Him eternally on new heavens and a new earth. He promises a glorious future of joy and rest to all those who believe in Him. Amen. Let's respond to the gospel message by rising and singing. And a sing from Psalm 103, which speaks of the steadfast love and faithfulness of our God. We'll sing stanzas one, two, and seven.